Good morning. Um, as we open our Bibles on Matthew chapter 6, this is one of the most well-known um, passages in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. In uh, my country, Peru, um, every child is required to study religion. We have a religion class in school, and it's mostly Catholic, and uh, that actually it is Catholic, uh, as the Catholic religion is the official religion of the country. And uh, so every morning it starts with a prayer. And during the, the day, we have to study the teachings of the Catholic Church. And a lot of uh, evangelicals would uh, opt out for their children not to go to that class because they felt that it, it wouldn't be appropriate. My father, being a pastor, he did not make us opt out, actually. He, he not only allowed us, he encouraged us to go to that class and to, to, to listen to um, what um, the course had to teach us about it. But one thing I remember is that every kid in that class knew the prayer of our father by heart. And sometimes they would even play with the words and introduce things that were not in the prayer because they were actually not praying it, they were just uh, repeating it, right? And um, some, some kids had fun with that. And this prayer has become known as our father right, the Lord's Prayer. And I sometimes wonder if we have failed with it in that a lot of us, most of us, will probably know the Our Father and fail to know Our Father, uh, which is the purpose of this prayer. The prayer is not about learning the prayer. The prayer is about knowing Our Father, knowing the God of the prayer. And you have probably seen when two people look at the same image and there's a meme going around that, that I've seen on the, on the social networks where there is a, there's a figure in the floor and there's two people and one of them says, is it six? And the other one looks at it from the other side, it's a nine and they're arguing about, you know, which one it is, right? And sometimes we have a tendency to think that if there's only one perspective. There's only one way of looking at things. And maybe today I would like to look at this passage from a slightly different perspective. And looking at a passage from a different perspective doesn't mean that what I'm going to say today is the right way of looking at this passage and every way you've seen it before is the wrong way. It's just a different perspective. And sometimes looking at things from different perspectives allows us to, to see a lot more rich content into it. That's why we have four Gospels, because 
uh, each one has a different perspective. It shows us a more complete picture of what's being said. And in this case, I would like to look at this prayer from the perspective of the Lord, of, from the perspective of Jesus, who is saying this, this prayer. If you remember in this passage, in the context He's teaching them that they should not be, uh, when, they, when they give money to the poor, they shouldn't do it in such a way that everybody learns about it. And when they uh, fast, it shouldn't be done in such a way that everybody knows about it. And when they pray, it shouldn't be done in such a way that everybody knows about it. So it, it is, the Lord is teaching us about how the things that we do that are sometimes, sometimes become religious, they should be done more internally, right? That, that's the general sense of this passage. Nevertheless, if we look at the way Luke tells the same story, Luke says that at some point, his disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And out of that request from the disciples, the Lord said the following words. And it says um, in verse 7, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. That's a, an interesting statement, right? Don't babble. Don't, don't just repeat things because you think that because you repeat things over and over and over, you'll be heard more. And unfortunately, that's precisely what we've done with prayer that he gave us uh, right after that, right? He says, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This has to be one of the most interesting paradoxes of Christianity, right? You ought to pray because your father knows what you need before you pray. It's like, then why should I pray? Well, because I'm telling you that you should pray. Now, this then is how you should pray. So the Lord is telling his disciples, this is how you should pray. Nevertheless, the words are coming out of his mouth. What does this prayer mean to him when he's saying it? So when we compare what we're going to read in here with the way we usually pray, we usually have like an opening statement in which we address our prayer to God. And, and, and we use different formulas to, to, to call God, and our Father, Lord, and, and different ways that we address our prayer. And then there's a list of requests, of petitions that we put in the middle. And then at the end, we close the prayer with the usually the words, in the name of Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't take me wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we say it just because that's the way we've said it all along. We say those words just because that's how we always done it. But, for example, when we come and say, in the name of Jesus, that's one thing that when we go back to at least this prayer and we examine all the prayers from Jesus, 
we never see him saying in the name of Jesus. Obviously, because he is Jesus, right? He's never saying in the name of Jesus. So where does, where does this formula of in the name of Jesus come from? Well, he said that everything we ask the Father in his name, right? But maybe we need to rethink about what that means. Was, was the Lord really asking us to say a formula at the end of our prayers? And if we say that formula, everything will be done. And if we don't say the formula, things won't happen. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, what you ask in my name? I, I have a, a, a different way of looking at those words. I think that if I go into any of your homes this afternoon and I knock at the door and um, the wife opens the door and I say, well, I come in the name of your husband, he says to give me $500, um, well, you know, uh, maybe he did tell me that, maybe he didn't, right? But if the person at the door believes or knows that I have been sent with that request, is going to honor the request. But if I just made it up, if I just, I'm, I'm just making it up because I want the $500, then I'm not coming in the name of the the other person, right? I just, I'm just making it up. So to come in the name of Jesus does not mean that it's a formula that we add at the end of every prayer. It means that we come to the Father because the Lord Jesus has sent us there. And when we make up our petitions, when we make up our request, not in the name of Jesus, but in the name of Felipe, because Felipe wants this, then we're not coming in the name of Jesus aren't we? So uh, that ending of the prayer doesn't exist in the Lord's Prayer. But when we compare the middle, it is also slightly different. The opening tends to be the same. The closing is not there. But I would like to look at the middle. What our requests look like in the majority of the cases we ask for our health, our personal health, the health of our relatives, the health of people we know at work, right? And that's, that's excellent. That's, that's a good thing to ask God for. Then we also tend to ask for peace and well-being. Uh, we ask for uh, financial peace. Uh, we ask for peace in our country. We ask for peace in some other places in the world. And, and, and that's a remarkably good thing to ask God for. And then we ask for salvation. We ask for salvation of our children, those who we know are not walking in the ways of the Lord. And we ask for salvation of some of the people that we know that are not coming to church or are, are just starting to come to church or don't want anything to do with God, right? And we ask for salvation. So those three major areas is where I have, in my experience, noticed that most of our petitions, most of our requests land somewhere in, in, in there. But when I compare those petitions with the petitions that the Lord Jesus is asking in his prayer, or the prayer that he says, you should pray like this, they're slightly different, aren't they? There's probably one 
that we could uh, kind of map to our petitions when he says, uh, our daily bread, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, there it is. There it is, the daily bread. That maps to all the petitions that we have. But I have, I, I think that we're probably misinterpreting what he said there. Let, let's look at the petitions in order and see what um, we can uh, get out of that. The, the, there are five well-marked petitions here. The first one is about the name of God being hallowed. Then the second one is about the kingdom of God. The third one is about the daily bread. The fourth one is about forgiveness of sin. And the fifth one is about not letting us fall into temptation, right? The first one is our Father in heaven. That's the, the addressing who we're talking to. And it's interesting. Is Jesus being God, he is saying, when you pray, pray to God. That's, that's him, right? But it says, pray to God in heaven. So he is distancing himself from who we are addressing in our, uh, in our prayers, right? And, and, and we'll see, why is he doing that? The next thing he says is, hallowed be your name. And I always had trouble understanding this statement. It is very hard for me to understand why is Jesus asking me, asking you, asking his disciples to pray that the name of God be hallowed. Well, what's going on here? Can I, can I make God's name more holy than it is? Is there anything that I can pray about? Because I'm, I'm assuming that the things that I pray about are things that I, I can something uh, make a, a change, affect the change in God, right? And so for the most part, I, I tend to be to take this statement as a statement, not a request. This is not, this is not, we're not requesting. We're just saying the name of God is holy. But maybe not. It is very hard to understand what is going on with this statement. So I'm going to put it on hold for a little bit, and I'm going to come back to it later. So let's continue uh, going through the rest of the requests. The next request is, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. You have to remember that when John the Baptist came around, his message was what? The kingdom of heavens is near. The kingdom of God is near. And then when Jesus started his ministry, he said, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. So, what does it really mean when Jesus says, you need to pray that the kingdom of God comes here? He already said it's near. It's very interesting to me, there, there, when, when I'm reading and studying the Bible, I find things that I call parentheses. And they are not parentheses in the sense of uh, like uh, sync, uh, in uh, grammatical parentheses, things that are said to kind of outside of the context. 
but more in the mathematical concept of parentheses, a, a grouping, right? Something that starts as a, a, a subject, a topic, and then the ending. I, I always look for the ending. And sometimes those parentheses go across chapters. And because we tend to read the Bible in chapters, we tend to miss what is being said there. And in, in this passage, I find a, a very interesting parenthesis, and it's about the kingdom of God. You notice that this, in, in, in this prayer, Jesus says, your kingdom come. And then, another very well-known verse in chapter 6, verse 33, it says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given uh, uh, to you as well. And we tend to take, take that verse totally out of context and think that if we, are, if we come to church, if we read the Bible, then uh, we don't have to worry about working, <laughs> right? Uh, because everything will be provided by God. But I see this as a, as a closing parenthesis of the kingdom. He's saying, your kingdom come, and then at the end it says, seek the kingdom. So in between these two parentheses, we're going to see a very interesting description of how the kingdom works. He's talking about the kingdom, but what is the kingdom? He said, both John and him said at the beginning of their ministries that the kingdom is near. And then towards the end of his ministry, he told his disciples that he was going to eat this supper with them in the kingdom of his father. So what is the kingdom? Um, when the Lord sent his disciples to preach, he told them the message is go out and tell them that the kingdom is near. But Jesus is the king. Throughout the Old Testament, we were promised that the kingdom will belong to the son of David. The son of David is going to come and he's going to be the king forever. And the, the, the throne will never be apart from the house of David. Yet, we read history and we see that children of David, Solomon, and then the rest of the, of the children, they did not live up to it. And the son of David was not whom God had chosen to fulfill that promise. Except that the promise is about the son of David. But the son of David would come to earth and he would be going into Jerusalem in that donkey. And the son of, of David, the king, will come to establish his kingdom. Yet we re rejected him and we crucified the king. So when, when, when Jesus says, pray to our Father in heaven that his kingdom come, he is the king. And he's begging his disciples to pray that more and more people accept him as the king of their lives. Pray to God. The kingdom needs to, to grow. 
The kingdom needs to be, uh, needs to affect more people. I know you're very happy with the bread that I give you, he told his disciples. And some of you follow me because I give you bread. And I know you're very comfortable being a Christian in this church. But the kingdom needs to grow. The kingdom needs to reach more people because the king came and we rejected the king. And then he continues saying, your will be done. And this is Jesus saying, telling the disciples, you pray to our Father in heaven that his will be done. And sometimes we use this as saying, Lord, I want that house, but not my will, but your will be done, right? Yet, is that what Jesus is talking about? Is that what Jesus is interested in when he says, your will be done? No, that's not what Jesus means. This prayer reminds us almost, almost word by word of his last prayer, right? He's in the garden. And right in the garden, he says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be what is the will of God? The will of God, we tend to trivialize it and think it is about which college we go to, which person we marry. But the will of God is about Jesus dying on the cross. That is the will of God. And Jesus is going to have a hard time because when he is crucified, the sins of Felipe are going to be put on top of him. He is going to be accused of doing everything that I have done. And believe me, you don't know half of them. Well, you don't know 10% of them. And Jesus, sometimes we think he, he's suffering in the garden because he doesn't want to die. No, he came to die. He's suffering. Because he's going to be accused of sin. And he cannot accept. It goes against his nature to carry your sins for you. To carry my sins for me. And he, in that moment, it's going to be such a grave time in human history. When the wrath of God is going to be all going against this one individual who has committed every sin in history. We know he didn't do it, but he's going to be blamed for it, and he's going to be punished for it, because that is the will of God. And Jesus says, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You will pray like this, Jesus says to his disciples, that the will of God be done. Pray that I die for your sins. Pray that I'm capable in that last minute, in that last evening, 
of carrying through the purpose for which I came to earth. Pray that I am crucified. Pray that I die for you. I came to do my Father's will, that I will be killed instead of you. So that's where the, the next one comes in place. The one we tend to think it is about our material things, right? Give us today our daily bread. And we put that in our homes, in our dining rooms, and we think, and we use it to, to ask God for our um, provision. Now, there's, don't take me wrong, there's absolutely nothing wrong with us asking God to provide for our needs, absolutely nothing. But what is Jesus thinking about when he says, give us today our daily bread? In Matthew 4, when he's being tempted by the devil, he says, it says, Matthew 4, 2, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Early in his ministry, Jesus is reminding us that our daily sustaining force is not physical. Yes, we need bread to, 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 to live another day. Yes, we need to eat and we need to drink in order to sustain this body. But Jesus is starting from the beginning of his ministry to teach us a, another lesson. There is another daily sustaining vitamin that we all need. There is something else that every single human being needs. And we tend to overlook that. A very special passage in John chapter 6. It's pretty long. I'm not going to be able to read it all, but verses 31 and forward says, Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Oh, the Jews were very, very proud of the fact that God had provided for their physical needs in the desert. And, 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 and Jesus says, yeah, that, that is a historical fact. But Jesus said to them, in verse 32, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. You've heard, you've read the stories. The whole Old Testament speaks about all those historical facts. Let me tell you one thing, as I mentioned probably several times before. The whole Old Testament was written for the purpose of teaching us about salvation. And Jesus takes this one event from the Old Testament and he says, I tell you the truth. 
It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you, present time, who gives you the true bread from heaven. Ask every day for the daily bread. I am the daily bread. He continues saying, the Lord Jesus in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. As soon as he explained that there is a different bread, it's a better bread than the one you get from the store, they want it. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I have to believe that when Jesus is talking, when Jesus is teaching them how to pray, and he mentions bread in his mind, he knows he is the bread. And he keeps going, right? In verse, uh, you can read the rest uh, at home. It is a, a precious pas passage. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. There's no doubt about it. The Lord Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the only bread you need. Yes, ask every day, daily bread. Daily bread from heaven, that is me, says Jesus. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. I am the daily bread. And then when he had the last supper with his disciples, he took the bread and he said, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me, just in case they had any doubt, just in case they forgot the Lord's prayer. When he gave them the bread, he said, this is me. This bread is me. Ask for the daily bread every day. So, next one is going back to chapter 6 of Matthew. Sorry. It says, forgive us our debts. Now, this subject is so big. It is such a big subject that I'm going to reserve it for next, next week. Okay, we come next week and we'll talk about this one. So I'm going to skip it for now. But it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtor, debtors. And the last one, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When the Lord, again, the whole prayer is about the purpose of Jesus coming to earth. Every single statement about the kingdom, about the bread. And now, remember what happened in the last night before he was crucified it says the bible says that he brought his disciples it's in luke chapter 22 and it says he brought his disciples to the garden and he told them 
pray. What? Anybody remembers? Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Prayer and temptation go hand in hand throughout the story. And here is the disciples asking him, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. And he says, pray that you not, do not fall into temptation. And then on the last night when he is in the verge of temptation, he tells his disciples, pray, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then the passage says, he withdrew about a stone throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. So Jesus was praying. And what happened the next day? He was crucified. He did not fall into temptation because he told them, pray that you will not fall in temptation. He went and he prayed. But what does the passage also tell us? It says, when he rose from prayer, and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. And he asked them, why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray again, so that you will not fall into temptation. And then the next day he was crucified, and they were scattered. They were all over the place, running away as fast as they could from the Lord. And Peter, the one who is always saying, no, Lord, I doesn't matter. I will be with you. To, I'll go to jail. I'll go to death with you. And then he's denying that he even knows the Lord because he fell into temptation because he did not pray. He did not pray. So, there's a strong, direct relationship between our prayers our not falling into temptation. So, let's examine, examine one more time, real quick. What does hallow be your name mean? It is not a statement. It is not a statement like we tend to say some phrases, some catch-all phrases that we do when we say, um, bless you, my brother, or uh, uh, if God allows, I'll be here on Sunday, right? Phrases that we have built that have sometimes no meaning behind them. And we tend to use this phrase in such manner, but it is not. You see, if I ask a bunch of Christians, I shouldn't say, a group of Christians, what is the first commandment? I'm going to get one, one response. But if I go and I ask a group of Jewish people, what is the first commandment? The answer will be different. Very different. And you know what? They are right. We tend to dis discard any interpretation by Jewish because they rejected Jesus. But let me tell you, they got the first commandment, right? And we go into syntaxes and we say, grammatically, it is not a command. But go into any, any uh, version of the Jewish Bible, go into any synagogue, and you will find the very first command 
is I am your God. And we say, that's not a command. It's not a commandment because it's not a command. So we scratch it off, forget about it, and we go along and call the second commandment the first. But the first commandment is I am your God. And the same way, hallowed be your name, it is not a statement. It's a request. It is a petition. Now, let's look at it in reverse. If you don't pray, you will fall into temptation. And you will cause that the name of God not be hallowed. If you don't forgive your brother or sister or your relative or your neighbor, if you don't forgive them, you will cause that the name of God not be hallowed. And if you don't seek first the kingdom of God, if you don't recognize the king as your king, then you will not allow the name of the Lord to be hallowed. If you don't do the will of God, if you don't find the daily bread in your life, if you don't find Jesus and eat of him every single day, you are attempting against the hallowing of the name of God. If you don't surrender to the king of the kingdom, you are not allowing him to have his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the essence of this prayer is really hallowed be your name. And I beg you to consider this next time you say these words. You are asking God, oh God, please, hallowed be your name through my life. That every act that I do that every attitude that I have contributes to hallowing your name in this city, in this house, in this place, in this family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.